end of the world makes me a little nervous. Where would you go? The stars are up ahead! Get ready to find out, because the comet is coming into your orbit. The legal drinking age is now 10, but... <laughs> sure thing, Christian. With us, we have Tom Ryan, who is one of the admins and, by his own admission, a super fan of the Night of the Comet movie, the 1984 cult classic Space Zombie, Post-Apocalypse, Valley Girl, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's, a, bun it's a bunch of uh, movies and genres all smashing the one. Tom, I appreciate you talking to us about this about this beloved movie that people still talk about 30 years after it came out. Thanks for having me, guys. I am more than happy to be here to talk about Comet. And so let's tell us a little bit about yourself. Just tell us who you are, where you're from, and how you got became a super fan of, of uh, Night of the Comet. Well, I'm a theater actor and director uh, living in Philadelphia, and uh, I've been working at, in theater since I was in high school. I studied it at Ohio University, and uh, you know, started working from there doing summer stock and some regional stuff and everything. In 1984, I was cast as an extra in the film Heart and Soul, which was released in 1985 as Mischief. And one of the stars of that film was Catherine Mary Stewart, who played Bunny, and got to know her really well on set. We became friends, hung out together, actually went to the premiere of Mischief with she and her husband. And so I immediately you know, became a fan of anything she was doing. Uh, Last Starfighter came out right after we finished wrapping, and then that Christmas, Night of the Comet came out. And so I, you know, 
kept going and seeing it, and I was just enthralled by it. It's like, I just thought it was one of the coolest films I'd ever seen. And I got back to campus, and they were showing it there, and I went with friends every single night to see it. So, you know, it, it just kind of took off, and then I got, you know, like DVDs when they came out because you couldn't get them on, you know, regular and everything. And so it's just like, it's, it's probably, I always joke, it's my second favorite of Kathy's movies. Because mischief is always going to be number one. <laughs> so you actually saw the movie when it came out originally in theaters in 1984. Yes, I went to. I was home for uh, Christmas break, and and my uncle and I went. He was going to take all the, the nieces and nephews out for a movie, and we looked at the paper, and I saw that it was there, and I begged. I'm like, oh, come, it's got to be. We've got to see this. My my friend is in this. So we went to the movie theater in Cincinnati and saw it with him, and then I went back home and I saw it a couple more times while I was on break, and then, yeah, I went back to school, so my introduction was, was in the movie theaters. Okay, well, I just, I just I find you bring up the movie theaters, because I actually have the box office the week it came out, courtesy of Box Office, box office Moja, and Christian, you gotta hear this, and also, Tom, just the variety of movies that came out the week that neither comic came out, so this is the top ten uh, movie uh, box office for that week that it came out. Uh, number one that, that week was Missing in Action, a Chuck Norris canon film that's really terrible uh number two country a movie i never heard of it's a walt disney movie apparently uh, do you ever hear of that movie christian or tom i have no idea on that one if it's disney i thought maybe it was the sally field one or something i'm gonna say so christian you ever hear of this movie country well, there's a certain disney down period so this was well before the little mermaid started okay i see number three oh god you devil and that was the third movie, right? That was the third one, right, yeah. It was Oh God, Oh God, Book Two, and then Oh God, You Devil. And I think, yeah. I, I think Oh God, You Devil is supposed to be like really terrible, right? It was really bad. <laughs> Number four, uh, making three, uh, uh, about three and a half million that week. Night the Comics. So number four, yeah. it debuted. So it actually was top five. Oh, and and wow. number five was Teachers. Anybody ever hear yeah. that movie? That was actually filmed in Ohio. It was filmed right before Mischief was filmed. A lot of the, the crew and everything came from Columbus to Nelsonville to work on that film. They, they were filmed back-to-back -back in Ohio. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Okay, number six. You probably heard... The, everybody probably heard this movie. The Terminator. The original The Terminator. Sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah. <laughs> number seven. Another one I never heard of. Just the Way You Are. Ring familiar to me Christian, did you, have, did you ever hear that? I've never heard of it. It probably was a flop. And the next three, uh, I'll go without saying. Number eight, the Academy Award winning Places in the Heart. With Sally Field, by the way. That was Field. That is Sally Field, yeah. Uh, number nine, another uh, cult classic that, that endures this day, Nightmare on Elm Street. And the original then, one? Oh, yeah. Yep, the first that one. Wow. And number ten, Amadeus, the best oh, picture winning... Old. So, the one that best picture that year. But the reason why I wanted to, to read the box office is because I just wanted to put context of when this movie came out. And I think that the 80s was perhaps the best decade for movies. Would you agree with that, Tom? Oh, I definitely think so. Especially, you know, the mid-80s, you had so much good stuff coming out and so much stuff that, you know, is now considered, you know, cult classics. You know, like between, I think, 82, like 85, 86 was just, you know, they were the ones that were, like, you know, hitting on all cylinders. Well, because you look, you look at all those movies that came out that week, Missing Action, just some trashy Chuck Norris action movie, Not the Comet, you know, low-budget sci-fi uh, zombie Valley Girl movie, Terminator, you know, Big Bu uh, not well, 
relatively bigger budget sci-fi, but just, you know, such a trend-setting movie, and then Place in the Heart, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, drama, Nightmare on Elm Street, another, uh, uh, trend-setting horror, and then Amadeus, which, uh, you know, won, won Best Picture that year. So, yeah, so, night, so, um, 1984 itself was it uh, just by going by this it was like a unique year for movies with all those movies just coming out, um, and so uh, Tom, I want to ask you uh, when you first saw what were you expecting if you can remember when you first saw this movie, neither comment. I honestly knew nothing about it other than the fact that Kathy was in it. Um, you know, I I talked with her on set and had known a couple films. You know, she said that she had been working on right before. Uh, mischief, and so when I saw that was you know the one on the paper, I knew it had something to do with her. I had not seen any trailers for it. I had no preconceived notion at all what I was walking into. I just knew that I was seeing one of her films. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, and just also so that people can know what the movie is about, um, just uh, without giving too much away, this is the most I'll say about it, is that it's the story of two Valley Girls in 1980s California, who are the survivors of a post-apocalyptic comet that destroys almost the entire world, and basically them surviving uh, zombies, evil scientists, and that is all I'll say. I think that I, that's all should be said because anything else would be probably spoilers. So I that's a good synopsis. <laughs> um, Christian, uh, you're the one who suggests this movie. I don't want to be talking to uh, all the time. Let me feel uh, feel some questions to Tom about the movie, if you'd like. Go ahead, but before you get off into asking Tom some questions, I think when it comes down to how I stumbled upon the movie, hmm. and I mentioned this before we got to recording this podcast, but I... I mean, let's just say I'm a fan of one particular actor since, I mean, in this movie that really doesn't get all that much credit for what she's been doing over the last 30 some odd years, and that's been voice acting. And obviously, I'm going to just go ahead and say it right now. I'm, I mean, the only reason why I got involved is to, you know, being a fan of this movie, finding the social media pages, join the Facebook group, yada, yada, yada. It's because I'm a fan of Janice Cavalier, the chick who played Sarah in this particular movie. And fun fact, fun fact, actually, this was her third live action role. Her first film, and her only film, but her third live action role, not just of her career, but of the first three years of her acting career, as she was in... Hot Shots, which featured a lot of known names like Soleil Moon Fry and Joey Lawrence. Then she was in Mr. T's Be Somebody or Be Somebody's Fool, which also featured Joey Lawrence, New Edition, Mr. T, you know, names that would later be stars of the 80s, 90s, or 2000s, and obviously this. But still, the reason why... I mean, that's basically the reason why I became a fan of this movie. And you'll probably, I mean, you probably heard a few, you know, lines like, I don't know, my parents never told me to breathe anything for strangers or stuff like that. But... <laughs> Give the girl a bunny wrench. <laughs> yeah, of course. But, you know, I just think that, you know, if it wasn't for this particular movie, 
not only would people have not heard of Janice Kawaye, but they probably would have never heard of Robert Beltran, who would later become a member of the Star Trek The Next Generation cast. Or they probably would have never really truly heard about Catherine Mary Stewart or Kelly Maroney, of which I think Kelly Maroney was in, I don't know if it was Maroney or Stewart, but I think one of them was in Flashdance the year prior. Uh, no, actually, neither one of them were. Kelly's film before that that she was known for was Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Oh, right, right, of course. Yeah, yeah and then Kathy had done, uh, she, she, she did some small roles in, like, in Nighthawks and, you know, a couple of things like that. But, uh, yeah, 80, 84 was her big year. No disrespect, I hate to interrupt, even though it's kind of my thing, but Catherine Mary Sue before then was in... Nighthawk and the Apple, which was yep. short and bad, but a complete cult classic nonetheless. And she would yeah. later be known as being in The Last Starfighter. But right. When you talk to her, she has some great stories about how she got the Apple. It's like, uh, it's, it's amazing how she was in that. Yeah, but I still think that if it wasn't for this particular movie, none of the people that I mentioned probably wouldn't have gotten to the level that they have been or continuing to go on to in the case of Kawaii, who is now in her 33rd year of doing voice acting and obviously 38 years of acting overall. But still, Andrew, I think you got some questions to ask Tom, so I'll just let you fire away. Sure. Um, before I get into the questions, I'm just going to give some, some technical uh, background on the movie itself. Um, it had an uh, estimated budget of $700,000. Very uh, impressive, especially because it made over $14.5 million at the box office, and it doesn't look like a $700,000 movie, I'll also say that. Uh, it's directed and written by Tom Eberhardt and produced by Andrew Lane and Wayne Crawford. Um, I'm curious to know, Tom, have you ever met the director or the uh, director slash writer, Tom Eberhardt? No, I've heard so many stories about Tom from both Kelly and Kathy, but I've never had the pleasure yet of meeting him. I would love to. It's so funny because he's kind of an, an I don't want to, yeah, cause he's kind of an enigma in that there's not a lot that's known about him, and there doesn't, I tried to find some interviews, but there's really not a lot to find about him. He's kind of just, he's kind of just known for neither comment, and really, that, he, he has a bunch, he has a few other movies that he wrote for, like, he wrote, uh, for Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, and I, some TV movies, but for the most part, neither comment was, like, his magnum opus. Um, yeah, and he's become very reclusive since then, it's like, he's not, you know, a very public person, and, you know, doesn't, uh, you know, participate, you know, in social media and stuff. I know that Kelly's had several conversations with him over the years, only because there's always been interest about doing a comic sequel or doing a remake of it. But uh, he's very just, he's just kind of like a stated into the background. Yeah, also now to mention, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that, you know, you know, you could probably, like, book uh, Kelly Maroney uh, and uh, Stu and Kathy and Mary Warnoff and a bunch of the other cast in, like, for conventions. I'm pretty sure that, you know, these conventions would love to try to get the director uh, of the movie itself to talk about uh, from his side, just because, you know, I'm sure that, you know, Kathy t has talked to death about this movie with everybody, so is Kelly Maroney, but with, with as little as there is about from Tom, I'm sure that, like, some sci-fi convention out there would, would probably, like, kill to have him on as a panel or somebody like that. Yeah, or, you know, it's like San Diego Comic-Con, I, I could see them filling Hall H 
you know, easily, you know, with a, with a panel, you know, with them, with, with Tom heading it. Uh, you know, you said Kathy and Kelly, you know, do quite a bit of conventions. Uh, Mary's done a few. Uh, Robert occasionally does, you know, Star Trek stuff. Uh, he's never joined, you know, the two of them. Um, Ivan Roth, who, who played Willie in the movie, um, he, you know, he's working, you know, in the business. He uh, works actually for Ellen DeGeneres. And he is, like, all of a sudden started expressing interest in going to cons, you know, and, and doing stuff with Kathy and Kelly. So you can have an incredible panel at... San Diego Comic Con. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, I don't, has uh, Kathy ever said anything about why he's kind of reclusive, or has she has she told you anything that you that that you would feel um, at liberty to say by any chance? Yeah, not really. Just the, the fact that you know he just kind of started you know pulling back from the industry, and you know it's like uh, it's a, you know I, I believe that Kelly said recently that the rights for Comet have reverted back to him because she's been wanting to do something with it. And, you know, he just doesn't have, you know, the, the interest in doing it. It's, it's kind of like, you know, I did it, it's done, and that would require me to go back into the limelight again, and he doesn't really seem interested. No, so it's, it's all, he, he's, he's, he's kind of, it's kind of Terrence Malick level of just, like, reclusiveness, and just, I don't, actually, I couldn't even find any, like, recent pictures of him. At least, we, I know what, what Terrence Malick looks like, but, like, Tom Everhart, it's like, it's it's all actually I'll I'll say it's more of Thomas Pinchon level where it's like <laughs> I wonder I wonder if there's if there's even a Tom Eberhardt maybe there was somebody else who was actually maybe uh, who was directing the movie and like went by like went by that pseudonym I don't know probably not but um so no, I think Tom was for real especially with being the writer of the film and you know both girls have had incredible stories and they loved you know working with him uh, and everything and you know it's like and you know I I you know. I talked with the two of them too about really how the movie evolved because the movie that was re- released really wasn't the movie that everybody intended on making. It was supposed to be incredibly a lot darker. You know, um, they didn't really have a lot of the humor elements that kind of, you know, makes it what it is mm-hmm. and everything. So it's like, so, you know, they were, they were very involved with Tom and so he, he definitely was a real person, but, uh, yeah, he just seems to kind of like disappeared. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, also, you know, speaking of, of dark, I do want to talk about something that I don't think gets talked a lot about when people discuss movies, and that's you know the marketing and the and the uh, publicity. I want to talk about the poster. You know the the poster that I'm ta- uh, talking about with uh, the famous door with Kathy's yes. yeah, silhouette in it, and then the people looking up. I just want to comment right. that like posters from I'm gonna say pre nineteen two thousand. Our movie posters are just incredible and just so much more memorable than posters nowadays. Oh, yeah. <laughs> posters now are terrible and just, they look like they were created in about five minutes with no right. sort of creativity. But I just love this poster because it creates an air of mystery behind it. Like, what is, is this an alien movie? Is this a, a movie that's like a sci-fi movie? Is it, it, it there's, it, it gives you, it gives you question what is, what is going on? It, it tells you a little bit, but not too much. What do you think about the right. poster? It, it almost looks like a Twilight Zone kind yes. of thing. With the open doorway and all the light, you know, with, with Catherine being, you know, in the, you know, in the silhouette and everything. It's very Twilight Zone-ish. Yes, yes. Christian, have you seen the poster, uh, that poster that I'm talking about? Christian? Oh, no, I hope we didn't lose Christian. Oh, did we lose him? <laughs> no, no, he's, it looks like he's still here. He may, maybe he's... He might have us oh. unmute, but um, I'll ask him that when he when uh, he comes back. Um, I think it's really cool, too, like because you know I do collect you know, you know Starfighter stuff and everything too, and 
there were several different posters that were released um, internationally because a lot of times with posters back then, like I know, like with with Mischief, my my big uh, thing with that is it's the exact same picture in every poster, no matter what country you're in. Uh, like you know, there's the, the Japanese poster where it's just like the skyline. There's other places that had they actually used the zombie cop. You know, in the poster, there was another poster. Um, I think it's it's one of the Asian posters that shows Catherine on the motorcycle. You know, the, the close up. You know, yes. of that. So there were several different variations of the poster that were done worldwide. And then when Shout Factory released the Blu-ray, they did an alternate cover. Um, you know, they used like the regular one with Catherine in the door frame and everything. But then they did a, you know, you pull it out and reverse it, and they used the uh, zombie cop as well because that seems to be an image that really, you know, people immediately, you know, recognize, you know, with Eye of the Comet. Yes, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm looking at one of the other posters. It's kind of, it kind of looks like a comic book almost with uh, Beltrain, uh, uh, Kelly Maroney, and uh, Kathy on the cover with the motorcycle and three uh, zombies. Um, yes. Uh, yep. Is that the one that they, they use for the um, Shop Factory DVD? No, the, the Shop Factory is a totally different one. It's just the zombie. It's like the close-up of the zombie cop. It's the picture that was used in the press kit. Okay, gotcha. Um, gotcha. Okay, it's like you know, and you know, all colored and everything. Gotcha. Okay, um, Christian, did you return? Okay, well, <laughs> when, <laughs> Christian, if you hear this. Let us know that you're okay, that you're not being kidnapped, please. Um, but uh, let's let's talk a little bit about the movie itself. And so, one of the things I want to talk about is kind of how this movie, you know, it's a term that you hear a lot now, especially with Star Wars, is subverts expectations. Now, when Christian chose this movie, I went into it totally blank. I heard about it, but I didn't know anything about the plot. And so, immediately, when the movie begins... The um I for I don't I forgot I don't have his name written down but the male actor who comes to visit Catherine Mary Stewart at the theater, I think yeah if, the boyfriend yeah yes the boyfriend you think that I think I think I don't know if this was Everhart's intention but my my belief was that he was gonna be the main actor for this movie the protagonist when you uh do you think that 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 Everhart wrote it with the try of kind of subvert that oh no it's not gonna be the the boyfriend. It's going to be the girlfriend. It's going to be these women who save, uh, who wind up being the heroes. Do you think that was an intention by the uh, writer? Uh, well, I think it was, that was Tom's intention all along. It's like he definitely, you know, wrote a movie that was about, you know, the two girls, you know, saving the planet and, you know, and it being, you know, a female, you know, driven show. Um, you know, it's like I think the boyfriend just served the part because later when they realize what's happening and the zombies are, you know, attacking and eating people. And, you know, they realized that, you know, Reggie's boyfriend was, was a very early victim. But, you know, it was always along that it, it's like it was these two sisters that were out to, like, save the world. Because, yeah, because immediately the boyfriend gets, uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's no longer a fact in this movie much, much earlier in the movie is all I'll say. Right. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's very, and the way that it happens also is very surprising. Um, you know, it's trying just like there's, there's nothing heroic. There's nothing. It just happens. It's almost. It's right. it's kind of. It's it's all. It's kind of shocking almost. Just like how how he's written off. Right. Um, and, and she finds you know the, the bloody wrench you know later knowing that that was used on him. And, yes. Yes. Yeah. Um. One of the things also I want to talk about uh, talk about is the is 
how this movie looks. This movie is probably about 70%, I'm going to say, red or orange or oh, yeah, whatever it is. What do you yep. think? Uh, what do you think about the look of the movie? Um, as a, as somebody who's in the business, a movie fan, all that stuff. What do you think about how this movie looks throughout most I of it? I think it really sets everything you know apart with the movie, and you get the whole setup. You know, with, with the skies all being red, and the you know, and they're always talking about you know the red comet dust and everything. Uh, you know, Tom actually you know definitely lit that movie and filmed that movie absolutely perfectly because everything is under that cloud you know until toward the end you know when the rains come and the skies start clearing and you know all of a sudden you also you also notice that you know the characters are wearing other than you know samantha's cheerleading costume everybody's in very darker colors and then when the world opens back up and the rain washes everything away you know there's kathy in this you know really pretty pastel you know dress and everything so he, he gave a lot of thought how the coloring was going to look and, and how, you know, the earth looked at that point, um, you know, with with the comet and everything. I think it was brilliant. Because mm. I also, you know, what's also, gives some, you know, other movies that came out there, you could say are, you know, post-apocalyptic, you know, all that stuff, you know, probably the most famous one that comes to mind is Mad Max. I mean, you know, Mad Max yeah. is, is I, I, I don't want, uh, I guess, more brightly, brightly lit. There's a lot more landscape. It's a lot. It, it's a. I don't want to say it's. It has a sci-fi feel. It kind of has that like a grungy sci-fi feel to it. Um, right. And but in but this one is kind of it, it, it's 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 kind of contrasting with the whole California. What, what was it? What was it? Was it San Diego? This was or Los Angeles? I forgot. Los um, Angeles. Yeah. It, the. The post-apocalyptic world in a major metropolitan city that's still, you know, that's still intact. You know, this isn't, you know, I am legend where, you know, years and years have gone by and the city's left. It's right. still there. It, it is still yeah. there as if it was, you know, it, you know, people were going to work the day before. People were, you know, just going about their daily lives. So I like that contrast with the movie that, you know, yes, you know, this, 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 this over, this like, this very, you know, this, this red almost a threatening color that, that that's throughout the entire movie, but yet it's still in the familiarity of a major metropolitan city like Los Angeles. Right. Well, you get too. It's like, you know, after the whole scene where, you know, where Regina, you know, battles the, 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 uh, the zombie, you know, in the parking lot or in the alley and then, you know, takes Larry's motorcycle and everything, you know, she pulls up next to a running Mercedes. You know, the car's still sitting there. It was at the stoplight, but the people inside of it, you know, have just been disintegrated. Yes. Um, so, you know, life was happening at the moment the comet, you know, went over. It's like, and then you get up at home and you have all the stuff with, you know, all the people that are out for the parties, you know, and all the red dust and everything. And, you know, she comes out of the movie theater and there's all the clothes everywhere. So you're right. I mean, it, it's just a major metropolitan area that was totally alive the minute before. Oh, yes. And, uh, you know, whether, you know, I, especially because, you know, the movie... Suppose the movie budget was around seven hundred thousand dollars. Yet this movie doesn't feel like if I feel like it has a huge scope around it, in that in that they do more with less by just you know right. like like you said you know the running Mercedes you know you know people you know just the dust you know all around you know you know the party that they were having uh, that uh, that uh, Kelly's sister uh, that uh, Kathy's sister in the movie uh, was at. And then you know they're all going outside to see the comet. And you see all the clothes and all the dust. You, it has a, it doesn't have that feeling of a low budget movie. That's right. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, you can, there are some movies you can just tell, oh, you know, this was a low budget movie. But it doesn't have like, uh, that's just that. You know, it does have the be the negative side effect right. of a low budget yeah. movie. 
Um, well, and Catherine will tell you that it's like, you know, I mean, it was kind of like guerrilla filmmaking at points, too. Like, the, all the, sh- the scenes that were shot, you know, like, you know, with her coming up on the Mercedes and stuff, that was Christmas morning. So there was, like, the streets of L.A. were empty. You know, they could actually get out and film right after sunup and everything. And, you know, so they were taking full advantage of having locations, you know, that they could get into and use and, uh, you know, capture on film. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, you know, but funny that you say that the filming was done on Christmas morning because if this would have been a week later, knowing that the road phone parade would have took over the entire streets of Los Angeles. Oh, that's right. Moved down to Los Angeles, they would have been in trouble. Yeah, that's right. They wouldn't have had the access they had. Oh, great, Christian. We're glad that you're back. I just wanted uh, to get your uh, quick thoughts. Um, have you seen the poster for the movie? Oh, yeah. I've seen the poster for the movie. It looks psychedelic. But considering the first one was just an open portal with the characters in the background, I mean, it looks weird at first, but again, it looks completely psychedelic. Hmm. Oh, uh, Tom, would you say that this movie kind of has a psychedelic, um, a, yeah, a psychedelic look to it in terms of just like cinematography? Would you would you go would you go that route? I, uh, see, I think more psychedelic, more like you know some of the '60s films and stuff. I think this had just a, such a dark tone to it, and and like you were just talking about the whole red overtone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't know if I would use the word psychedelic. <laughs> no, okay, okay. Um, now, what do you think now? You said that this movie was supposed to be dark and much more darker, um, less comedy. So, and I got the feeling it feels like it, they were trying to go a serious route. But I don't know. Do you know of why? Maybe of why it kind of just was that something that the studio came in and was like, no, this has to be much more lighthearted. It's too grim. Or did was it just the way they just shot it and it was just that's just how it it got produced. Well, I think from the stories that I've heard from Kathy and from Kelly is that, you know, they really were looking at the, you know, at the original script and everything, and they were shooting things different ways, um, you know, because it was, you know, they, they, they were kind of trying to decide if it, was, if it was going to be, you know, a zombie movie, you know, more sci-fi, if it was going to be a dark humor type thing. So they were filming different versions of it along the way as they were going to. Um, the scene at the end where, um, you know, uh, Hector, you know, reveals that Samantha is dead in the car. From what Kelly has told me, that was actually supposed to be the ending, and they didn't like it. So there's the, like, you know, they didn't like the idea of one of the sisters, you know, actually being dead. That, that, you know, she needed, she survived this far. She needs to keep going. And so they did, a, they revised that, and you know, just had she was faking dead. But so those are some of the things that were like decided why they were filming. Mm, I you know, so I, I think I think Tom really had two movies from, from really what I, I gathered. He had two movies to edit, and what came out was you know the darker humor and you know some of the really bad jokes and you know Samantha really is you know the, uh, the comic relief in it. I see. You know the whole radio station thing and everything. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, basically, as far as the ending I think. When they first realized, oh, we can't have a dead lead character, they basically called an audible and have Hector, a.k.a. Robert Beltran, you know, try and save the day. Right. 
it would be great, you know, like, you know, like, there's the two cuts of Superman. It would be, I know, I know it's probably unlikely, but, you know, there'd be great, there could, yeah, there could be, like, the darker, the, the darker cut of, uh, Night Comet. I'm just, would love to see, like, just the other, the other way that they were playing the film. And unfortunately, I don't think that, that, that exists, that, that, that does exist, unfortunately. Um, but, um, so yeah, let's talk about the radio station, because I think that's, I, I'll probably say, that is maybe the most memorable, I guess, set of scenes, or the ones that people I remember most when they when they get into the radio station as a safe haven, and then they're they're kind of just you know they're just two valley girls operating right. a radio station. Yep. What do you think about the, about those scenes where they're just you know basically being? Uh, uh, I think it was Kelly Maroney who was being who was being like a radio DJ, and then they she meet was Ro a DJ, yeah. yeah, and then what Beltron? What's up? So I question was that? I was just saying the radio DJ that you were talking about was trapped in the little tape recorder yes. in the in the movie, Steve LeBeau. He's an actual radio DJ in the city of all this. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Okay. I thought it was some actor. Uh, uh, the radio station is so 80s. I mean, you know, you, you, you look at that, and that's one of the things that really sets the movie immediately in the 80s, is you have all the neon, you know, and everything. And that's really when, you know, stations were, were really first going over to syndication and had, you know, pre-programmed stuff and everything. So when they walk in expecting to find the DJs and stuff, and all of a sudden all the automatic carts start taking over and the reel-to-reel, -reel, it's like, you know, Kelly has the famous line, you know, beam me up, Scotty. You know, it's like, this is just, you know, this is not what they expected. And, and that's where radio was heading, you know, at that point. You oh, know, so, so this, this is like... Obviously, now we know it's more automated than anything. Yeah. Right, oh yeah. So this is kind of just like right before oh, maybe MTV or Video Killed the Radio Star? Uh, that whole thing? Mm-hmm. Okay, oh, so it's, I don't want to say it's the last rose of radio, but it's kind of like where radio is... Kind of just like right before radio is starts the slow death that it that yeah. it um, before automation really start taking over with it and everything. Oh wow, that that long ago. Oh, I thought it was in eighties. Yeah. Okay. I think it's when MTV premiered it. Gotcha, gotcha. But yeah, that's a good point about the MTV when they aired it. Okay, that was that's that's when it that's when the uh, the uh, the death of radio started happening. Right, it really started coming over right. Uh, and it's really funny. It's like I've attended you know conventions you know with you know both Kathy and Kelly, and people always remember the radio station and everything. And you know one of the things that you know people are always walking up to Kelly and like and saying it's like the legal drinking age is now ten, but you will need ID. Let's be real. <laughs> that's just a line people remember. It's right up there with, you know, Daddy would have gotten us Uzis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so, so is, is that your favorite scene, or do you have a particular favorite scene in this movie, Tom? I love the radio station because of how it sets everything up. I, what I like, and I think just looking at it from a film standpoint and from Tom, I love the dream within the dream sequences. When Kelly's being chased by the zombie cops, and she wakes up screaming, and she's in the radio station, and, you know, you know, Reggie's trying to help her, and then, you know, the, the zombie cop comes in the bathroom and slices her throat, and then you realize that's a dream. That's when you know it's like, man, you're, 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 you're set for a roller coaster here. That, that's actually my favorite 
series. I love when the girls are, are testing the guns and they're, you know, shooting the car up. You know, that's iconic. But, you know, I, I, I love the, in the race station itself, and that's where the whole dream sequence takes place, too. Mm -hmm. Christian, how about you? Do you have a favorite scene uh, in this movie? Oh, no. Sorry, Christian, go ahead. Sorry, I was in the middle of eating something, but <laughs> for me, I think, uh, sorry, but still, you know, I think for me, other than, you know, the line where Sarah says, I don't know, my parents told me never to breathe any peace from strangers, my favorite scene was the mall scene where they had the big shootout and where that one character, I think, I don't know if you remember who said this line, but he said something among the lines of, I'm not crazy, I just don't give a fuck. <laughs> that's Willie, yeah, that, that's, that's Ivan Goskin. Willie, it's like, it's, when, he, when he shoots the, he shoots one of his own people, and Regina says to him, she goes, you're crazy, because I'm not crazy, I just don't give a fuck. Let's talk a bit about, about the zombies, and I also want to uh, let everybody know this movie was originally not going to be called Night of Comet. Apparently, it was going to be known as Teenage Mutant Horror Comet, Comet Zombies, which I'm so glad they did not. Yeah, and then they shortened that to, t to Teenage Comet Zombies. I just, just and that shortened to Night of the Comet. <laughs> okay, I, I just don't know, like, the... I don't know, whenever I hear teenage something, I'm thinking of, like, those 1950s schlocky movies where they take... Very B-rated, yeah. Which, it's like, you know, it came from outer space kind of movie. Uh, yeah, so, you know, I mean, I I guess if that's the... I don't feel like the... I don't know. If you want to make a movie that's kind of, like, in the vein like that, but I kind of don't see this movie as one of those movies. It's, 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 it's... I don't know, just because... I don't know. What, what do you think, Tom? What do you think about... Do you think the title... Well, I think I think were intentionally campy, yeah. and I think that while there's some campy elements to Night of the Comet, I don't think it was ever meant to be a campy movie. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, by, if you had left with, you know, the title, even, you know, Teenage Comet Zombies, 
that gives a whole different, you know, impression to the viewing public what they're going in to see. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's not what this is. I mean, it really is, you know, a serious, in quotes, movie about, you know, the Valley Girls saving the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, and let's talk about, about the zombies. Um, also, I think that's another reason as well, you know, I, I mean, since we're, we're doing a deep dive into this movie, and, you know, obviously I'll let everybody know in the uh, description that there will be spoilers, there's, no only, there's only about maybe less than a dozen zombies in this movie. And I think had it gotten that title, you kind of think, oh, zombies, it's going to be like Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead. Exactly, They're going to be running yeah. from the zombies. But, you know, there's only, let's see, there's a biker zombie, uh, there's the zombies in the mall, and, um, uh, were there any other zombies I'm, I'm forgetting? There's, a, there's the guys turning the zombies from the think tank. You get the, yes. You get the two doctors that, yes. that turn the zombies. But yeah, I, that, that's, you know, oh, well, you get the kid zombie when Hector goes home. To oh, yes. Whether his parents are still alive or not. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, so, you, so you have the kid zombie. But yeah, there's, there's not a lot of zombies running around. It's not like they're being chased like, you know, neither walk, or like, you know, The Walking Dead or something. So I'll, I'll pass this question to you, both Tom and Christian. Uh, Tom, you first. What do you think about the look of the zombies? Because up until this point, so it's 1984, the, mo the most popular zombie, zombie movies that have come out are Night of the Living Dead, 1968, 69, and then Dawn of the Dead, 1977, 1978. And we have, the idea of zombies is just like these brainless, slow-moving you know, one no creatures that just want to eat people. But in these, in this right. one, zo the zombies at least are, are from what we learn later in the mall is that they're cognizant that they can still form speech, um, that they are that they that they have some sort of intelligence. They're 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 psychopaths, but they nonetheless still right. have some sort of cognizant uh, recognition that they are alive. And this is before. I think this came out before Return of the Living Dead, which did the whole, you know, zombies, uh, you know, can talk and communicate and all that stuff. So this this actually did that before that, which is very interesting because right. uh, yeah. everybody points to Return of the Living Dead as, you know, oh, that was the first movie that featured zombies that run, that talk. This one might, you might say, could predate that. But yeah, let's talk about that. What do you think about the zombies and how they look in their presentation in this movie? Alley zombie too. It's like it's, it was really funny when you look at, at at him in the battle with Regina because it's like he doesn't really have you know you can tell like the later zombies they were doing like the, the decomposing more and you could tell the latex on the face you could tell like you know they were trying to make their eyes look sunken and stuff. He looked like someone who had just gotten out of a car. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like there really was no decomposition to him. And like you said, you know, he could still speak. Um, you know, he got that you know that great alley fight you know with Regina. And everything. It's like, and then later, I think they really went for. They kind of upped the scare factor with the police zombie, because they wanted him to look a certain way. They really wanted him to look, I think, frightening, you know, with you know, with Samantha and everything. Um, but you know, even like you know, the doctors at the end, it's like all of a sudden their whole face thing was. You could tell they put a latex thing on them and made the eyes look sunken. It's like that's how you could tell who was a zombie at that point. Um, so it wasn't overly exaggerated. I, I think the, the only one they really went full force with was was the zombie copy. He had to look really menacing, mm -hmm. and I think they really succeeded at that. What about the zombie kid as well? Because you know, uh, um, it seems like it, uh, you know, uh, first of all, you know, showing a kid zombie, you know, is kind of a surprise because usually most movies, you know, they tend to, you know, t usually uh, in movies you tend to leave babies and kids. 
out of you know out of the picture right. when it comes to stuff like this. Very rare for that to ever happen. So, with, talk about the zombie kid itself. What do you think about the presentation of that and just showing that you know, yeah, listen, it ain't just adults that are happening to everybody. Yeah. And what was great is, is Hector has that really funny line, Luck, you know, lucky for you, I like kids. <laughs> you know, if he'd opened the door, it would have been an adult zombie. You know, I think Hector Ortega's got out and shot him. Mm-hmm. But because it was a kid, Hector couldn't bring himself to do that. And he says to him, it's lucky for you that I like kids. Then the kid's just chasing him, like, all through the house and knocking things over. It's like, you know, this kid is not going to be stopped. So you also get a sense of, you know, how powerful and physical the zombies can become. Because even this kid, you know, is breaking through doors and, ch- and chasing Hector through the house and stuff. So I thought it was very interesting for them to do it with, you know, with a kid like that. But, again, tongue-in-cheek with Hector's line. You know, it's like, if you weren't a kid, you'd be, you know, I would have shot you by now. It's, kind of, it's the old Alfred Hitchcock <laughs> method of, Alfred Hitchcock used to say, you know, you have to have loads at 15 minutes or 20 minutes of serious, uh, of a serious setup, and then five minutes of, like, of, like, comedy or something to uh, relax right. the audience. Something along those lines. But, yeah. Well, you hear, you know, the, way, the setup is perfect, too, because, you know, Hector's in the living room, you know, like, and you hear, you know, you don't even hear the, the zombie trying to break in. All you hear is, you know, the, the, the zombie breathing. You know, and Hector's like, get away from the door, get away, get away. And he opens the door, and they do a point-of-view shot. You know, Hector's looking out, and there's nothing there. And then he looks down. I'm like, Jesus Christ, this is a kid. Mm-hmm. So it, it was done brilliantly. Mm-hmm. Christian, yeah, let me ask the same question to you. What do you think about the presentation uh, and the manner the zombies are pre- present, uh, presented in, in this film? Well, I'm going to have to agree with Tom. They basically took a whole bunch of late sets and made them at least look like zombies. But, to be honest, I think it was a little ahead of its time because, you know, I mean, I think it was a little ahead of its time in the fact that a lot of movies of that particular genre started using late sets, starting with the Night of the Living Dead back in the late 70s. But we all know if this was being done nowadays, which... I still think that they planning on doing a remake of this. The zombies will look more like something you would see off the walking dead. Mm-hmm. Right. Especially mm-hmm. the one that pulled, especially the one that pulled Samantha over, well, actually the one that was in the bathroom with Samantha trying to choke her out. I don't know what dialogue I remember the zombie particularly saying, but if, if this were done nowadays, if that particular scene would have happened, the master would have been a goner. Right. Mm-hmm. So, do you think that the term zombies is a, is a kind of a little bit wrong to call these creatures, Tom? Or do you think that, is that just, you, what else, there's not, what else do you call them? I don't know, space animals? I have no idea. Well, I think it's a, it's a classic term. When you, I mean, when you look back to Romero's, you know, like, you know, Night of Living Dead and everything, and, and the term zombies being used there, it really is the undead. Um, and that's, you know, we know that these people are not dead because if they were dead, they'd be comet dust. Mm. But they're, they're decomposing and they're becoming dead. So I think zombie was probably the best, most recognizable thing you could call them because that's what they were turning into. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's also not established yet, like, do they do they just kill or they uh, or, or do they eat or they like the creatures from I Am Legend where they're cannibals or I am uh, you know eat people so it's not established you know what what they what their motive is you know you know right. the, the only time you hear about the uh, about them doing you know well, you know that Larry was killed you know by the one by the the alley zombie mm. and then Hector says that he saw the zombie eating a cat 
Mm-hmm. And so we have this is a live cat, and he goes, or a dead cat, and he goes, mostly dead. That really is the only time you hear about anything about the zombies, you know, being cannibalistic. You know, we know that Larry was killed. Was he eaten? We don't know. They never, ever say, or, or you know, Regina doesn't find an arm laying somewhere or something. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, is it just that they're, they're just programmed to kill? Um, and the only thing that, that we know that they've eaten so far have been cats. Mm-hmm. So they really leave that up to, I think, the imagination of the audience. It's like how far these zombies are going. Mm-hmm. And what do you think about that? Do you think that's a... Well, because I think nowadays... Um, also, I also take into budgetary concerns. I'm pretty sure that Tom Eberhard, you know, he didn't want a hard R or maybe even an X rating. Mm-hmm. So he probably wanted, you know, he wanted to get that, that newly instituted PG-13 rating so that teenagers, young people could come see the movie as well. So I'm, pro- I'm pretty sure there had to be a business sense why... You know, I don't know. Maybe you know. Maybe there's some whole, some lost scenes where there where uh, the boyfriend was being eaten, and Tom, right. you know the, pr- the producer said, "Hey, we want PG-13, not an R or something like that." Who knows? Maybe there's something like that. But what do you think about that? What do you think about about kind of just leaving up to the audience? I mean, that's uh, from an artistic standpoint. Was that is that kind of is that kind of cool? Is that kind of a lost art nowadays as well? Oh yeah, I think because now it's like when filmmakers do stuff, they don't really leave things to the audience's imagination. Mm. You know, it's like, uh, you know, if, if somebody is dead, you know, they need to show dismembered bodies, you know, or they need to show, you know, like in, you know, night, you know like uh, The Walking Dead, they need to show a zombie, you know, munching down on somebody or eating a leg or something. And, uh, you know, Comet did, didn't need that. It's like, it would have been very gratuitous, um, you know, and it would have given a whole different, you know, air to the film. And it's like, whereas today, like I said, I think that it's like, you know, we, we're so... As audience members, we're so used to like not being shocked by anything that directors try to shock us even more. And you know, I think that really came in. You know, a few years ago, when the whole you know idea of what were they calling it uh, the the um, uh, chiller porn or something, you know, where the body counts were high and we saw you know really blood and guts and, and disgusting stuff everywhere. I think that it, that was too much, and I think that's why that genre didn't really last as long as it did. Mm-hmm. But I, I think Comet is is almost a very innocent, you know, look at the whole, you know, what what they're trying to say and these zombies taking over. I mean, we know they're bad guys. You know, we know that they can kill. Uh, we know that the doctors that are turning into zombies, you know, would have, you know, killed, you know, Regina and the kids and everything else. But, you know, but you don't see it. Um, and it wasn't necessary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So actually, let's talk about the main characters themselves. Uh... Uh, and so, what do you think about having two Valley Girls as the protagonists for this movie? Is I it- think they were perfect, and because they're so different, um, you know, Regina is very solid. You know, she's the, you know, she's really the strong one. Um, you know, Samantha is. I think Samantha's even more the Valley Girl. You know, she's the cheerleader, and you know everything else. And I think for that time frame. Kelly Maroney represented exactly, you know, the girls that were like that. Regina was kind of, I mean, she liked shopping and everything else, and so the, the mall scene is all that and everything. But, you know, she's really strong. And I think she's able to kind of, you know, pull her sister along, you know, and everything else. And then you find out, it's like, you know, that, you know, Samantha's not exactly a pusher. She knows how to use a gun. She knows the difference between a Mac-10 and an Uzi. You know, and these, you know, these are girls that were raised, you know, by, mil- you know, in a military family and stuff. They know their way around, you know, arms and ammunition and how to fire guns. And, you know, they can take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. I do think that, you know, uh, what do you think also maybe that 
was was it chosen for Valley to have Valley Girls at all? And I, here's the thing: when I say Valley Girl, here's the thing: I'm from New York. Anybody who's from California, any any girl from California is a Valley Girl, just by definition. Right. So <laughs> they don't have to be from the Valley. They they can be from Oakland, and they'll still be a Valley Girl in my eyes. Still, yeah, That's just how we see it, you know. Just like how everybody from you know from New York, you know, from up from Rochester to Long Island is a New Yorker, even though New Yorkers are New York City people. You know, that's right. Uh, but yeah. so, yeah. So do you think that uh, a, 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 having Valley Girls, was that something? Because Valley Girls were big in the 80s, those types of characters, like Fast Time and Ridgemont they're High. And, and, they're, and they're vapid and they're stupid yeah. and they're silly. Yeah. And it's like, so people wouldn't put much stock in them. I mean, even, you know, Regina has lines, you know, when she's on the phone with Doris. You know, she's saying, like, I'm 18, like, okay, and like, I can take care of myself. That's how Valley Girls talked. Mm-hmm. And that would have been you know, Regina's, you know, speech pattern. So there are moments like that when, you know, we do see it's like, okay, these are girls from the Valley or at least have that, the Valley mentality, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 you know, her, some of her lines are written like that where it's like, you can just hear the Val, the Val speak, you know, coming out of her mouth. Christian, what do you think about uh, having two girls from the Valley be the heroes of this movie? To be quite honest, I didn't even realize Tom, yeah, about that. So, this uh, this movie apparently uh, it, it has been an inspiration for Buffy, and I'm pretty sure other other uh, types of movies, TV shows, entertainment pieces like that. Has has uh, Joss Whedon commented on Night of the Comet being inspiration and all that you happen to know of? I have not heard co- comments necessarily from Josh. I do know that um, the, the, the showrunners for uh, I believe it's the TV show Supernatural. Um, he was like really influenced, you know, by Night of the Comet and, and everything. And a lot of times the movies, like the titles of the episodes that he uses, um, you know, he'll, he'll make references back to like certain TV shows or films. And there is an episode of Supernatural called Night of the Comet. It's mm-hmm. like where he plays a direct homage, you know, to the film itself. Mm, I see. I was speaking of Supernatural, that show is still on. That show was on when I was in high school. And yeah, I can't. It's I, Is that because of uh, the actor getting arrested? Is that why they finally decided to end it? Was that their excuse? Yeah, I think so. I think that's why they decided to end it. Yeah, 
what they said was they figured that they they went as far as they could go with it. Um, you know, that's that's the official word that I've heard and read. Uh, I, I, I don't know how you run out, how they just kept on, that show, 20 years or something like that show has been on. Or something like. Well, that's what I thought was amazing about it, because about like season seven or eight, you know, because I've always been a big fan of it, and, you know, love the way that it's written and everything as well, and I'm like, I don't see how they can keep this, this scene going. I'm like, what else is there? And the writers on that show are brilliant. It's like, okay, well, now in season nine, we're going to introduce God, and God's going to come down to earth, and God's a bad guy, and they're going to battle him. You know, season 10, we're going to open the, the hole to hell. So they really were brilliant, you know, with the scripts and, and figuring out concepts. They, they kept us going probably, I'd say, six or seven seasons longer than I ever thought it, it could possibly go. Mm-hmm. But that's the brilliance of their writers. Mm-hmm. And, well, you know, when we talk about Joss Whedon, you obviously have to talk about uh, strong female characters, and this movie certainly has too. So I just want to put this this context of this movie and just the 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 surrounding climate it came out and movie wise. So you know we had movies like Halloween, Alien, uh, the same year that this came out, Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, and Terminator, which all had very strong female characters. And I'm just uh, do you what do you think about these characters compared to other characters that came that 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 were uh, prevalent during movies uh, of this uh, era, uh, Tom. Well, doesn't Regina kind of look like Ripley from Aliens? When you, you know, when you look at, at Catherine's look and everything, it's like, you know, it's, it's almost like, and, and she's got a, a lot of, you know, like a Sarah Connor look about her and everything, mm-hmm. you know, as well. But I think, I think it was a point in cinema where, you know, when you talk about, you know, Halloween, it's like Laurie Strode, Kind of came through in the end, but she was still, you know, the the, 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 you know, the screaming, running girl. She was just the one who didn't get killed. Mm. Um, you know, so I think she was kind of on the line of whether she was victim or, or heroine. Um, but I think, like, you know, when you talk about aliens and you talk about now the comet, I mean, these girls were take charge. They were they were on the front line, and you know, they were they were kicking ass. Mm. You know, I think you know, Lori Strode was whatever was happening to her. She was trying to get, her, get herself out of it. Um, you know, and I think Jamie Lee brought a much stronger character as other films went. But, you know, you, you've got Ripley going right into the middle of everything to battle the aliens. You've got, you know, Regina and Sam going right into battle with the zombies and everything. So I think this was a period in films where they started kind of taking women seriously and women could be, you know, the protagonists. Because mm-hmm. now, you know, one of the big uh, controversy or uh, one of the big talking debates is, I don't know if you've seen, have you seen the new Star Wars movies by any chance? Yes, of course, all big Star Wars fans. Uh, what, what, uh, I know that, um, um, oh my god, I just forgot her name, uh, the one that... Uh, Amy Ripley? Yeah, uh, uh, yeah well, her character's name. Um, Ray. Ray, Ray, Ray. Um, you know, there's been, you know, talk that she's too much of a, quote, Mary Sue, that there's nothing vulnerable about her, or at least at the second I, I movie. Immediately, when Hector was brought in, it's like you saw he was one of the good guys. 
he wasn't coming in to rescue them, though. He was now a part of the team. Yeah. And I think that's what Star Wars did. And I, I was, that's what, yeah, that's what I was going to say, is that uh, compared to, the, you know, that these girls, uh, they're still, you know, you know they can still take care, take care of themselves, but there's still a, 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 a tinge of vulnerability with them. Um, right. Uh, there's, you know, there's not, you know, there's no, like you said, uh, Robert Belcher, you know, he's not coming in to save the day, you know, uh, you know, guns are blazing, and then he, he actually turns out to be the real hero in the end. It's all right. dependent on Regina, uh, on, on, on the two of them, uh, to, yeah, exactly. and he's, he's kind of, he's kind of a, an a, he, he's, he's there as an addition, not, not right. as the, as the sole, as the sole lone hero. Yeah, he's not the white knight riding in on a horse to save the poor girls. It's like, you know, they're, they're saving themselves. He's just really helping out. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's actually a great way to put it. And, yeah, Christian, I just want to ask you as well, what do you think about these two heroes uh, compared to other uh, protagonists in films uh, of this era and also, you know, compared to, you know, like a Star Wars uh, of today? You know, I think neither Comet had an advantage to where they had two heroes instead of one, especially in that era, and especially in that particular week or in that particular month when the movie came out because you had Terminator and Sarah Connor. You had Nightmare on Elm Street and the hero behind that, but you had two particular particular protagonists in that movie I think they had an advantage of that. Mm-hmm. But to be honest, I just wish that, you know, a lot more movies would just, you know, stick to two protagonists, especially in the zombie horror genre. Either. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, also, you know, we're talking about protagonists. Now, antagonists. Would you say that there's a, there's not really a sole antagonist in this movie. It's kind of just more... <laughs> Yeah. Basically, you know, I mean, the zombies are, you know, are a, a, a cause and effect. Um, I think if you're looking at a real antagonist, it's the, it's the, the think tank scientists that are, are going to harvest human beings, you know, to, to save their own skins and everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then you find out that they weren't so brilliant after all, you know, whenever, you know, Mary Warno says they left the, the air ducts open. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I think they're the real antagonists in it because... They've got an agenda. The zombies are kind of like what's affecting them and what's happened to them, and, and that's what they're reacting to. The, the, the scientists are really the bad guys. They're almost like, you know, like Nazis from back in like the 40s movies or something. I mean, they have an agenda, and they're out to save themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's you know, what I was reading by something. When Hector did the little gang sign, little finger, you know, think tank, think this. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, was that land or was that off the fly from Robert Beltran? I don't know if that was filmed or if that was something that the Beltran did. You know, it's like, I'd, I'd love to see, um, you know, Kathy's got a copy of the, of the original script, which I have not seen. And things like that, I would love to see how much was improv you know, and how much, you know, was actually, you know, you know brought back, you know, directly from the script. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, what... So, you know, it's funny that you bring up that, like, you know, that the zombies are kind of just causing... A lot of movies, uh, especially that you know, the one that comes to uh, mind most of is Dawn Dead. You know, the zombies are causing effect, but the real villain is society with the, you know, when the zo- like, obviously when the bikers come in and are just uh, 
just uh, wrecking shit in the in the uh, Monroeville right. Mall. Um, and then yeah, a lot of you know a lot of movies you know after the fact after Naughty Comet did that. You know, I, the one that comes to mind also is Twenty Eight Days Later, which is yeah there's, yeah, there's zombies, but then again, you know, it's people, it's it, it's a society, uh, it's a society without rules. That is right. that 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 is that is the issue. Um, as you remember the the very graphic scene where they tried the uh with the, those people, I think the the soldiers or something that tried to rape that one woman and that and that and I think it was in that was it twenty eight days or twenty eight weeks later one one of the twenty eight movies. Um, yeah, I think it was the first one. The twenty yeah, the twenty eight days later. I think I think it was too. Yeah. So yeah. what do you what do you think about the addition of having kind of just this this these uh th- this think tank this organization as the as the kind of the, the would you say surprise villain, Tom? Yeah, I think maybe they were because you know anytime you're in a movie and you know it's like you see scientists and everything they're working for the greater cure and you know and they're working you know to, to you know to find an antidote to blah 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 and then when they have you know the whole scene with them you know with, with, the, with the kids you know and the, and the survivors getting off the helicopter and they're talking about drawing the blood and then you see. You know the darkened room. You know it's like where they basically shut down brain functions and they're harvesting the blood. Then you start seeing it's like, oh, there's a lot more going on here than we think that there is. Uh, so I think the audience is led to believe it's like, well, the scientists are always here to help, but in this case, they're you know they're here to help themselves. They're not looking for you know a greater good. You know Je- Jeffrey Lewis's character is looking to save his own skin. He could care less about you know anybody else because it's you know. When they talk about the kids, I, I love when you're talking about, you know, about being such a fan of hers, you know, and they're like, oh, we're never going to get that much blood from the kids. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, uh, so there's, there, there's various degrees of how helpful their victims are going to be. But all the survivors they're bringing in are victims of, you know, of, of their plan to, to save themselves. So mm-hmm. that's when it starts really getting a really dark undertone. And you notice how dark everything is in the think tank. You know, it's, it's like in, you know, the scenes where they're interviewing Regina to figure out whether they can use her blood or not. The room is very dark and very blue-hued and, you know, everything is underground. It's like, so it definitely gives a different vibe, you know, to what's going on. It's even darker than, than all the red happening above ground. Yeah, and I, do, I definitely feel, you know, because when I'm first watching this movie, you know, like I said, I went into this blank. I think, oh, okay, I see the first zombies. Okay, so they're eventually going to have some, like, big showdown with, the zomb- with a bunch of zombies and all that stuff. And then, meanwhile, the ending kind of, it, it kind of, you know, I, that term subverts expectations. And it turns out that the, that the big the big climax is not some zombies invading uh you know, try, coming after the uh, the main characters, it's them trying to escape and destroy this 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 evil mad scientist facility. Must, yeah, exactly. The bad scientist. That's exactly that. That that becomes who you know who they have to destroy for their own safety. Do Do you think that it's introduced in in a uh, organic? Uh, way and that you know it's not like it because i think i you know one of the i was reading reviews of this and i one of the things that i saw that i just saw most common with people that were that had that were pointing out negatives about the movie was that they thought that the weakest parts of the movies were was at the was with the think tank what do you think about uh about that tom do you think that the that the think tank scenes are introduced organically and that they work sufficiently oh i think they work perfectly because i think you've got to set up it's like you know the you know, what they're doing and, and they're trying to find, you know, this cure and everything else. And then you find out, you know, how they're doing it. Uh, the, the scene with, you know, between Regina and, and uh, Jeffrey Lewis's character is, is actually hysterical. 
you know, when he's asking all these questions and, and you're really finding out what a smart ass Regina is, you know, and it's like, you know, he says, you know, uh, you know, pregnant. She's like, nope, thought I was once. And he's like, that's not important. She's like, yeah, that's what you think. There, there's a lot of really good humor in that. It's like, you know, when you ask her, she has, you know, uh, she says something about being a cancer or anything. She has cancer. So that's going to disqualify her from being, you know, a blood donor. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it, it's like there's a really funny give and take in that scene. It's a very light scene, which the underlying thing is, are you healthy enough for us to kill? Yeah, because uh, the, so, the, the criticism I was just seeing is that it seemed like people were more expecting a zombie movie and just not to go that direction. So it seemed like some people were just more disappointed that it didn't turn out the way that they wanted it to turn out. Yeah. See, I, I love the way it turned out because, like I said, it wasn't gratuitous. It, it wasn't done to, you know, to scare you or shock you. It's like, you know, you really rooted for, you know, for, for Sam and Regina, you know, to win this. And, you know, and I remember the first time seeing it when uh, Mary Warno's character, you know, gave the injection, you know, to Sam. And because they were already saying, it's like, well, I don't need to see the results of her. You know, she obviously has this. And you're like, oh, no, they're killing her off, mm-hmm. you know, and everything. And, you know, it's, it's which seems like that, that you, because you cared about Samantha at that point, you know, and, and then you thought, okay, well, you know, the Mary Warno's character is just doing what's best, and, you know, this is what's going to happen before you really realize, you know, everything is also going on at the think tank. I think Mary Warno is so underappreciated in that film. I love her in that film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, Christian, what do you think about the scenes with the think tank? Uh, uh, do they work for you, and... Are, are they kind of, is it introduced organically in your eyes? Well, to be honest, when I first seen the film five years ago, I thought it was just, like, random, obviously, especially considering the fact that how they took the kids into the same thing with no really explanation behind it. But as the years went on and as the times I watched this film went on, you know, I realized that it could have been done better. It could have been done with a lot more importance. You know, they could have given them at least, you know, a little bit of a part something in the movie say, oh, we knew this was coming. We just didn't know how lethal it was done or something like that. But I think that it could have been done a lot. It could have been done a lot differently, but, you know, I just think that when it came down to that, particular part where they showed the thing and they showed Samantha answering those questions. So it actually when they showed Regina answering those questions, you know, it kind of made you think what would have happened if it would have been done in modern times. Like, you know, how they asked Regina if she had cancer. Nowadays, they probably wouldn't have cared if you had cancer or not. They were still going to kill you. <laughs> right, they, they find some way to, 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 to process the blood so that they would get that gene out of it or something. Point of the matter is, I just think it could have been done a little bit, I mean, I think it could have been done with a little bit more planning as to who they were, what were their purpose behind the thing, and, you know, instead of having them show up during the scene where Samantha and Regina invaded the radio station where Hector was guarding, you know, have them show up before all this comic stuff goes down. Like, not really at the very beginning of the movie, but... like but somebody to establish them. Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, that's what you're saying. 
So uh, eventually, do you, uh, I'm curious to know. Oh, I mean, the, Do you think, Tom? Do you think that the that the the comet itself is a is a MacGuffin in this movie, and that eventually it does, you know, it it you know, for those that don't know what a MacGuffin is, it's basically something that the characters that it's is an object or something that the characters are usually trying to get, but then has no significant importance uh, in the uh, in the later movie. Alfred Hitchcock was notorious for that, you know, the most famous example being Psycho. Uh, the money that uh, Janet Lee has stolen, you know that 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 sets off the rest of the movie, but then becomes virtually obsolete. Uh, yeah. uh, do you think that the comet's a MacGuffin? Well, I think that because the, the comet, I think, is is the whole catalyst. It's like, and it happens so early in the movie because you've got everybody having the comet parties, you know, and everything. And there's you know the guy even talking about Haley's comet. You know, when things like it happen, people you know are running to the street because they you know they want to see it. Mm. Um, and then the comet comes and goes so quickly. But it's like, but the after effect, you know, stays, you know, throughout the entire movie. So I don't really think that, that they really needed to bring up the whole idea of the comet. And, and even in the very beginning, you know, they talk about, you know, we haven't seen a comet like this since the extinction of the dinosaurs. So they kind of throw a little red herring out there. You know, it's like that if people remember this, it's like now it's like, oh, okay, now people are comet dust because of the comet. And then it just goes on from there. I, I think the comet served its purpose um, mm. and then doesn't really didn't really need to go any further other than you know when they talk about you know steel made them you know exempt or something and the think tank you know should have been protected because they were all underground but they left you know the the, the, the air vents open and stuff so it's like you know there was you know little pieces of the cause and effect from the comet because also one of the things i'm happy about and you know had this movie come out in modern times i think it would have been a lot different is the just simple and sometimes also lack of explanations that are that are in this movie. You know, the, a comet uh, since the age of dinosaurs is coming, and that's what wipes out humanity. But there, there's no, you know, they don't tell you why these 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 things, why why it turned people into zo- some zombies and others. Oh no, it, it's all like wink, wink. It's yeah. Like you know, let, let, let's tell you that the dinosaurs were exempt, you know, or were extinct the last time a comet came over. Wink, wink. And now it's like we're everybody like you know outside you know watching comet parties because yeah. another comet like that one is coming over. Because mm-hmm. yeah, uh, I am Legend, the, the Will Smith movie, clear as day tells you, oh, these people, what was it? Uh, they were turned into vampires because of what was it? Some disease or something? I can't remember the movie. Yeah. So, so I saw the movie so long ago, but yeah, um, uh, it's it, it's. Uh, do you think if this movie had come out now? That there would that they would have tried to give some sort of convoluted, maybe even illogical explanation why all these things are happening throughout this movie: the zombies, why the comet killed some people and not others. Do uh, you think there would have been way too much explanation and killed? There probably been so much more exposition because audiences, I think, now don't have the uh, you know the concentration levels either. It's like that you need to constantly like spoon feed them or remind them you know what it is that they're watching or you know. Uh, they, they lose their interest after three minutes or something. I think there would have to have been a lot more exposition. Whereas in this, you know, the comet goes over, people turn to dust, and let's spend the next hour and a half, you know, dealing with it. Because one of the things I like to I like to do when I watch movies is I I have something called the I don't understand uh, account, 
And whenever I hear that in a movie, that's that's not the character who's saying I understand. That's the writer trying to make a, a, a an opening for, like you said, exposition or something right. like that. To remind you. Yes. <laughs> Yes, to remind you that this does that, you know, that that right. does that, you know. Um, exactly. Oh, absolutely. Yes, exactly. And right. I, if I remember correctly, uh, and I didn't, um, I had my counter running uh, through this movie. I think I heard I don't understand zero times in this movie. Yeah. So I think you're right. You know, they, I like that 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 Everhart. You know, he explains when things are necessary. You know, oh, you know, uh, we need your blood to survive, all that stuff. But then he leaves other things. Okay, so why are some people alive and others are not? That's just what happens. You know, some people, you know, in the current crisis that we ha have now, some people have have magically gotten better, and unfortunately, others, you know, have succumbed to COVID nineteen. Right. We don't know now. We hope we will soon know know later. But in, in the context of the movie. We do not know, and Regina, uh, the, the, the two of them, do not... That's not what their objective is in this movie. It's not... Exactly. Well, and Regina kind of, you know, I mean, you know, they do give Regina the lines. It's like when they realize that Samantha ran away and she spent the night in the steel storage shed. Yes. You know, Regina spent the night with her boyfriend, you know, behind steel in the thing. Hector explains that he and the girl that he picked up, you know, slept in the back of his truck, so he was protected by steel. And Regina says, steel must be the answer. Yes. That's all they need to know. If you were protected by steel, then you're surviving. Mm -hmm. And they don't, they never bring that up again. It's, it's like, you know, you don't find out halfway through the movie. Oh, well, so-and-so was behind a steel curtain. Oh, so-and-so was in a steel box. It never is brought back up again. Once Regina solves the mystery, now we know what protected people. Mm -hmm. And we don't need to, we don't need to go over it again. Mm -hmm. So I also want to talk about some of the, I guess, some of the, the more lighter scenes. Uh, and I think probably, you know, the one where, you know, where would, you know, two valley girls go during an apocalypse? They would go to the mall. Yeah, exactly. So, and, you know, but also, you know, they're, you know, they're also driving around to Los Angeles. They're kind of doing things that, you know, what do you, th uh, what do you think about including those scenes of just them, you know, valley girls acting like valley girls? Do you think those scenes work for the movie, Tom? And you know every, you know everybody's out on the street and stuff. And you know you finally figure out that you know the, that uh, Reggie's arch nemesis DMK, you know almost hits Kelly and is you know hits Samantha in the car. And she says, "Nice car." He says, "Thanks. I have 27 more." <laughs> you know, just things like that. It's like okay, it's like you know I'm out for a drive and there's a lot of abandoned cars around here, so I might be driving an old you know you know Chevy Chevette, but now I'm driving Mercedes. You know, I'm driving Jaguars and stuff. So I, I think things like that gave some levity to it. You know, mm. when the girls are in the in the store, you know, it's like, and they're trying on all the clothes and everything, and Samantha's still worried about, you know, which one is going to stay in style longer. You know, which one is the better choice. That's just, you know, girls acting like girls or people acting like people with DMK. And I think moments of levity like that were, were brilliant in the film. I think, you know, that in Tom's script, you know, gave the moment So yeah, well, Christian, what do you think about that? Valley girls are going to do what Valley girls do during the apocalypse: go to the mall and drive and all that stuff. Do you think that those scenes work for the movie? I think they were just trying to, you know, 
reality yeah. in light of this situation because you think about it if you know if this was a more dramatic movie they don't damn well this would be at the shopping mall trying to try on new I mean trying to try on new clothes and shit mm-hmm. but I think they're trying to ironic that it would be in a shopping mall where they would have the most fun at because wasn't Tony Maroney in Chopping Mall like a couple of years after or before this? Mm-hmm. Yes? Yeah, that was after comic, yeah. Oh, yeah, so that was like in 85, 86, like mm-hmm. still. The point of the matter is, I just think that they were trying to display some normality in that particular situation where they're free to roam the fall for in Los Angeles. They're free to roam through the streets of L.A. and through that little shopping mall to the point where they did have that little shootout and to the radio station where they encountered somebody else. So, uh, uh, one, uh, we're going to be winding it down soon, Tom, so I just wanted to know as well, was there, I know you're a super fan of this movie, but I got to ask, was there anything about this movie that made, that you don't think works, you know, as a super fan, you can look at it in a different way than I can, who's seen the movie once, and, and appreciates it on a different level than you do, but what, is there anything about the movie that you just maybe, eh, you know, maybe they could have done this differently or something, is there anything in the scene, anything that is, is not perfect for you in this movie? And what about Christian? Do you think anything about the movie doesn't work? Little person and the mall scene, you know, I thought 
So why why do you think this movie has endured for as long as it has, Tom? You know, like I said, I, I, I when I read those the ten movies off the, the box office that week, we didn't know a bunch of them. Number one that week was Missing in Action, which nobody talks about that movie anymore. Right. People talk about talk, talk about Chuck North, but nobody talks about Missing in right. Action. So why has neither comet endured for so long and has survived? Uh, I think probably answering how, how Kathy and Kelly answer it. I think it really is the fact. That it was one of the first times that we saw two female, you know, protagonists, you know, leading the movie and were kicking ass and firing guns and, you know, you know, beating up the bad guys and everything. And I think that really spoke, especially once it came out, because, it, I mean, it, this got such another life when it came out, you know, on VHS and then again on DVD. And, you know, so many people that I, I watch, it, so many fans that come up to, you know, both Catherine and, and Kelly, you know, at the conventions and stuff, and, and talk about Comet. Guys had crushes on them, and that still maintains. They're both still, you know, cute as hell. And so well, guys had crushes, and they kind of like, you know, it's like, hey, I can have these tough, you know, blonde, you know, cheerleader chick. Uh, girls, because they said, you know, it showed us that we didn't have to be, you know, the weak link and everything, or, or, or be the victim or have somebody protect us. And I think that's what still resonates with fans today that are still you know, discovering, it's like when we go to the screenings and stuff, you know, we get people our age, you know, who, who watched it in the movies and, you know, just enthralled by it, and we get their kids and, you know, like, you know, teenage girls and everything who just say, it's not the same, like, you know, I can be as badass as Reggie was. And I think that still resonates in the film. I, I think that's why certain films from this time frame, you know, still live on and people come to conventions and people have midnight comet screenings. Like I said, nobody's screening, you know, Chuck Norris at midnight. Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly, yeah. I have nightmares Chuck Norris having an extra fist through his beard. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Uh, and, and so, uh, you mentioned it before. Let's talk a little bit uh, now. This will be one of the, the last topics we talk about with Night of Con, is the talk of a remake, uh, sequel. What Do you know anything about that that's going on right now? I do know, and I'm not really sure what I'm allowed to say. I know that there, there was... Something in pre-development um, that uh, someone had, had been given, you know, the, the okay at least to, to go into pre-development for something. Um, there's been a lot of issues with that. And like I said, it's like Kelly just recently said that the rights have reverted back to Tom. So I think it's Tom's choice what's going to happen to it. Um, yeah, I, that's probably all I can say. <laughs> okay. Oh, God, this sounds like... Um... Uh, like a Blade Runner issue. Remember, there was like that director's cut of Blade Runner. Like, right. there, like there's like three different cuts, but like they were owned by like three different people. But like one of them was like owned by some like Spanish or Portuguese producer from Brazil right. or something, and he didn't want to release. It just sounds like it. This sounds like I don't know. It might be actually bad that the the rights are back with Tom. I feel like it may be, that may not be good. the comment, you know, uh, Facebook site and, and Kathy and Kelly both have their official sites. And when it was first announced that there was look at a comment, you know, a remake and that the, the words were getting out, it was going to be much darker. They wanted to make it more like a zombie movie. And fans were just really pissed. It's like they did not want to see, you know, a, a, you know, a Walking Dead version of Night of the Comet. So, and, uh, yeah, I have to ask about that. So, you know, obviously you're not... Well, I mean, to be honest... Not like they would even have any say in the matter because if the remake were to happen now, they were still continue to 
work on this rebate, which I think they might be, but who knows with this current pandemic we're in. Right. If they were to continue with the that's a comic reboot, it would be more like a it would be more like a revamp version of The Walking Dead. Mm. Right. So uh, yeah, so just a, a little bit more um, about about a possible remake. I'll say, do you think that, in your personal opinion, is that something that should be done, or is that, you know, can the original just stand on its own or something? I like think that? the original stands on its own. I don't really think that there needs to be, you know, a reboot of it or a remake of it, um, because it, it for its time and its place. And with the characters that it had, I thought it was absolutely perfect. Uh, another of Kathy's movies that they're looking at doing, uh, not really a, it's not a, a kind of a sequel more, is The Last Starfighter. Um, and that's, you know, in, you know, pre-production and everything right now, too. I think that's a whole different ballgame because they're looking at maybe doing a continuation of the story and what happened during their characters, you know, 20 years later or something. Comet, they wanted to just, like, totally remake it and... I, I think that's a mistake. I, I think we've seen that with other movies that they tried to do, um, where it's like you know the the original really stood on its own, and you kind of need to leave it alone. Because I, I well, I'm thinking of some genre horror sci-fi remakes right now. You know, the the only two that I can think of that are even remotely watchable are the Dawn of the Dead remake, which I love. I think that's actually one mm-hmm. one of the few good remakes, and the Evil Dead remake because they just changed. They changed. It was not so much a, the exact movie that they remade, but they they took elements and then you know changed the setting, time, place, characters. Right. So and they just basically just kind of they told a different interpretation of it. I don't know how you could do a different interpretation of Night of Comet. It's really like yeah, unless you totally just turn it back on its ear and go back to the whole you know the, the original horror element of it. Let's make a scary sci-fi movie, um, you know, which kind of sounds like what they were trying to do. Um, then that's really the only way that you can do it. But then also the the problem is is then then you know what about character wise you know like who I mean I can't think of anybody who can play like I think it would almost be would the would the type of archetype that evaluates would it be kind of offensive in this day and age to have some a, a, a woman portray that type of character? Yeah, that's true. I mean, how, how could you you know have that kind of a character or something, or, or how would you portray those two girls? What you know, what would set them apart? You know, unless you did like you know like the horrible Elizabeth Banks Charlie's Angels they just did, where they tried turning it back on its ear again. You know, and you've just got these women that no one can identify with, and you know they've just got to be these real tough chicks. That was the thing is like in common, Samantha and Reggie could take care of themselves. They were tomboys, you know, but it's like you know they they weren't you know kick-ass in the very beginning. It's like, you you kind of went on the journey with them. I think when you do other remakes and stuff, it's like, and you come right out of the belt, you know, and, you know, now Regina is an MFA fighter, you know, and, you know, uh, Samantha is a Green Beret or something. You're not going to get the kind of audience support of the characters, you know, if you change them that drastically. Hey, Christian, maybe they should ha- uh, cast uh, Gina Carano as Regina in the remake. Oh, actually, 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 imagine if they got Gina Carano, Gina Carano, and Ronda Rousey to be the two main characters. Oh my god. And they're just judo <laughs> flipping. Ronda Rousey in a cheerleader outfit. I can't even picture that. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a nightmare waiting to happen. Especially for the Jets fans. This would be something different from what they're used to seeing of them. Right. Yeah. 
Uh, but so Tom, I want to leave some last thoughts with you. Just tell us overall. You know, if somebody if somebody came up to you and said, "Hey, Tom, why should I watch Night of the Comet? Why do you like this movie so much? Sell me on this movie." What would you tell them? I I say it's a popcorn movie that it's going to be an hour and a half of just really sitting and like watching these two girls, you know, kick ass and save the world and go shopping. <laughs> Actually, that's another thing I gotta say about this movie. It's an hour and a half. Now I have no nothing wrong with long movies, but if your movie is long and nothing happens or it's just not interesting, that's that's a that's a that's a crime. That should be that should yeah, be a punch. It's a perfect running time. It's like it, it's definitely a popcorn movie. You can go through a, you know a bag of popcorn while you're watching it, mm. and you know it's like I, I mean there's so many you know that, that's one thing that's really funny. It's like Kathy and I sit around and sometimes you know we we'll just do lines from it. You know, it's like, or something will happen to me in real life. I'll be like, you know, chopping onions or something, and I goof something up in the kitchen, and I go, "Well, this is really annoying." So I, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, if the remake comes out, it's going to be two hours long. I guarantee. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Christian, uh, yeah, any final thoughts on the movie Night of the Comet? Well, you know, all I gotta say, it's that if you enjoy Kathy eighties. Well, actually, if you enjoy, like, cheap, not so much cheesy, but, you know, fun, a price of life, I guess, dramatic comedy zombie movies, you definitely would enjoy Night of the Comet because of the fact that it's like The Walking Dead with, like, 50% less room. Yes. <laughs> but, but, you know, for those who obviously have curiosity about it, you can check it out on TV.tv. You can download that app for free. You can check it out on Shutter. That has a free trial right now where you get, you know, the, well, actually, where you get a seven-day free trial after you download the app. After that, you got to pay, like, about... I would like to read just one comment uh, that we had uh, from a listener, Michael Clifton uh, from New Zealand, who's a uh, who writes about combat sports. Uh, and he wrote that he loves Night the Comet, and he might have to rewatch it tonight since it's been a couple of years, and he's looking forward to this podcast. So, Michael, uh, hopefully you enjoy the rewatch. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, Tom, uh, I just want to throw it to you. Do you uh, I don't know if there's any projects that you want to plug or social media that you want to give out or, like, yeah, you know, anything else you want to say for you? I should definitely mention that, that, that there is an official Night of the Comet uh, site on Facebook. Uh, so all you got to do is go to Night of the Comet. Uh, Catherine has her own official uh, Facebook site. Uh, it's 
it's uh, you know facebook.com backslash Catherine Mary Stewart and Kelly also has her own official uh, Facebook page called actress Kelly Maroney so and you know both girls are you know incredibly active you know on their sites and posting you know all the time I co-admin uh, Catherine's you know site with her I'm an admin on the night of the comet site so I'm always in there posting stuff uh, it's, it's a great way for people to you know, share their information, you know, that they are. And people even will post on comments. I was looking for, like, the movie posters, like, you know, where's the best place to buy it? It's a great interaction, you know, with fans. And Kathy and Kelly, I guess, are both very, you know, hands-on with their sites. And so that, those are great Facebook sites to check out. Mm, great, great. Um, and now, uh, Christian, I know normally we do the MMA plugs, but I don't know. What are we doing in this case? Twitter handle. Mm. I'm on Twitter at Chris Gary92. You're on Twitter at Avenger1, A-B-E-N-J-A-1. The show podcast is on Twitter at We Are Rising Pod, W-E-A-R-E-R-I-V-I-N-P-O-D, all in one word. And uh, if you don't basically get the link that I just sent out, well, actually, if you don't understand what I just said about Checking it out on Shutter.com, checking it out on Tubi TV, checking it out on Amazon Prime Video or YouTube. Just support the official release. I'm pretty sure the Shout Factory, I mean, I'm pretty sure the Shout Factory still has the movie out in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, the Blu-ray is still out. You can still order it on there. I, I just put it up recently. They had it on sale for, like, I think, like, nine ninety five or something. So, yeah, you can still get the Blu-ray copy of it. Mm-hmm. Is it on Amazon? I, I would assume so, yes. Mm-hmm. So, of course, it wouldn't be on Amazon Prime Video if it wasn't on Amazon first. <laughs> right. All y'all gotta do, either way, if y'all download these, if y'all download Amazon Prime Video, if y'all download Tubi or Shutter or see the YouTube video or even buy the damn physical copy of it, you're still supporting the official release. So go out and see the film. It's in the works. I'll, uh, it's in the works. That's all I can say. Understood. Understood. Don't want to fall too many things. Want to keep everything. Want to keep everything on the down low, as they say. Yeah, and she'll have some great stories. It's like you know, from comment and everything too. So she'll be a great interview. I can't wait to hear what you guys do with her. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I may 
not be able to get a chance to interview Janice Cavalier, but, you know, this interview, hopefully, with Captain Harry Stewart would be the perfect thing to that. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, the matter is, we enjoy y'all, but, you know, keep us company listening to the podcast, and we hope y'all had a fun time listening to something other than face function for two hours. But other than that, we'd like to go ahead on and sign off. And instead of doing our usual closing sound bite, which is...